For more information, visit futurebased.org. Hello and welcome back to another episode of this podcast from the Beyond Human Relations series of the Future Based podcast with me, your host, Chetna Pai. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Ileana Hersky-Douglas about animal-computer interaction and how she's currently building technology and imagining an internet for dogs. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Catherine Oliver, who is a geographer and researcher currently working with urban chickens and keepers in London at the Department of Geography, University of Cambridge. From September of this year, she will be relocating to Lancaster University, where she will be a lecturer in the sociology of climate change. Catherine published her first book, Veganism, Archives and Animals, with Rutledge in 2021 and writes widely about animals from a geographical perspective in academic and public-facing forums, especially focused on chickens. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Thanks for coming on this podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I contacted you because when I was looking for people for the podcast, we already had some AI and consciousness. We talked a little bit about what I talked about just now, the animals and computers, and also with the Zoop project and imagining the whole thing as one system and not as a separate from animals. And so I was looking for something new, a little bit different. And when I saw vegan geographies on your website, I was so curious because this is a combination I hadn't heard of. And that's always my favorite kind of person to call on the podcast because there's so much to learn from them. But yeah, maybe to start off, you can just tell us a little bit about what it means, vegan geographies, and what it means to be a, geogra- a geographer in the way that you are. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am a vegan geographer, but basically mean I study the geographies of veganism. So different spaces, different networks, different relationships uh, between humans, but between animals and humans as well. Uh, so that work for me looks like, so, so in my book that you mentioned in the introduction, I look at kind of the past, presence and futures of veganism in Britain. So I worked in the archives of an animal activist called Richard Ryder, who people might know as coining the term speciesism, which has really kind of exploded the last few years. Everyone's talking about speciesism. I'm working in his archive and looking at kind of the development of veganism across Britain and the world, uh, but pr- primarily in Britain, just because of where the archive was. And then it, I, w- I was also working to interview vegans uh, across Britain uh, about their experiences becoming veganism, how becoming vegan changed their relationships with different spaces, not just like the obvious spaces like restaurants, but also workspaces, friendships, family relationships, all this, this kind of new way of being in the world. Uh, and then the final part of the kind of vegan geographies work that I've done was actually to do with chickens. And part of this is coincidence and part of this is by design. Well, I spent a lot of time with chickens because we rescued some chickens. Me and my mom rescued some chickens and I spent spent time with these chickens and thought about actually what does a, a vegan space, a vegan relationship with animals look like? How might we think after industrial agriculture? How might we think after kind of eating animals uh, so that's kind of the, the vegan geographies vegan geographies is a, a new field and um, there's more work coming out on it kind of um yeah every every kind of few months a new a new kind of thing in vegan geographies comes out but it's relatively new i think not because veganism is new but because talking about veganism academically is relatively new and there's a lot of pushback against it is kind of dismissed as activism or it's dismissed as no, having no place in academia but that's becoming less less the case as veganism mainstreams which has its problems 
as well as its opportunities. Mm. So that's kind of where, where, where I, my work has been over the last few years. Uh, and now I, I work primarily with chickens and I've moved slightly away from the veganism although my work is infused obviously with the ethics of veganism. Yeah it was really nice to hear in the first call we had when we were deciding what to do for the podcast because I was really expecting maybe something more general on veganism and then you were like chickens. And I was like, oh, good. Yeah, that's good. We'll do chickens then. But before we get really into the chickens, this is kind of a maybe a little difficult question, but kind of open question. But from the book you wrote, is there one specific fun fact or interesting thing that you learned during your research that you'd like to share? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a book that deals in fun facts. <laughs> um, well, not fun fact a... then, but <laughs> an interesting insight. That maybe people wouldn't know that you think could be something. Potentially, I think one of the biggest contributions of the book is looking at how friendship shapes uh, activist networks, has shaped the history of veganism and similarly will have shaped the history of other uh, activist movements. But also, yes, yeah, so, so, so kind of who you're friends with, who... And that friendship can be like liberatory, it can produce opportunities, but it can also be exclusionary. Mm. So in the book, I talk a little bit about how particular friendships or particular um, dominant voices in animal rights history have rewritten that history to centre a kind of white British male subject as doing all the work for animal rights, which mm. isn't obviously isn't true <laughs> so I think that's that's kind of the one of the interest the one of the things I find most interesting in the book I don't know if other readers find that as interesting but that was something I was really uh, was really important to me to foreground that actually things aren't and I think that comes into this because veganism hasn't been treated uh, fully fully kind of uh, explored as a, a historical thing in the way other activist movements potentially have because it's not been taken as seriously um, yeah we're in a moment where a dominant history is being written, but it's not the only history. And so we're at a moment of pushback as veganism mainstreams as well. And recognising how that history becomes the dominant one uh, was, and, you know, refuting it was really important to me in the book. Yeah. And I think the general theme of friendship and veganism continues quite strongly now as well. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, nice. that's interesting to think about Maybe that'll also give people a reason to look at your look up your book and read it. It's a good starting point. Yeah, definitely. And I have kind of academic papers as well, which are free to read. The book isn't free to read, but there are free to read academic papers, um, which we can point people towards at the end of the episode. Yes. Um, okay, yeah. nice. <laughs> okay, now getting back to the main focus of this episode, which is the chickens. So I understand that you have done also a bit of the charting of the history of chickens in London before getting into your current project which is with urban chickens and keepers and their keepers I might be saying this wrong but you can also correct <laughs> me in a second but yeah before we get into the current project could you tell us a little bit about the previous project and maybe the history of chickens in London so we can get a bit of context over the whole situation yeah definitely so I've been working on a fellowship with the global urban history project over the last year or so um, to basically look at the history of chickens in London as an Anthropocene history, as a history of um, the relationship between cities, people, animals. Uh, and I think we don't necessarily think of cities traditionally as spaces for animals. But over the last few years, certainly animals like foxes, rats, uh, birds, all kinds of different species have really been 
important to people during the pandemic lockdowns in many cities we saw animals reclaiming space um there was like a famous case case of goat or sheeps coming down from the hills here in the uk i can't remember which one it was but there are <laughs> images kind of in city centers of of urban spaces being kind of re um imagined with animals in them now chickens don't really fit into this because chickens are quite obviously not wild animals they're not animals that are just going to wander into the city without human intervention and in UK Europe most places around the world they never have been so chickens uh, originate in kind of Asia Southeast Asia um, there's actually sort of a new debate just started up about we don't know exactly when chickens were domesticated and we don't know exactly mm. where chickens were domesticated. So until a couple of weeks ago, the best theory we had was that they were domesticated in northeastern uh, China was the oldest archaeological evidence we had of domestic chickens. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, two papers were published. Um, one basically found, um, di- refuted that claim and found that chickens were only domesticated about three and a half thousand years ago and that chickens only came to Europe and th- uh, through Europe to Africa I think 1,500, much too, much more recently than we thought. Mm. But what was really important about that paper, which is in Antiquity Journal, was that they said chickens didn't come, uh, weren't domesticated for food. Chickens were domesticated as ornamental birds, as objects to kind of revere and think about how beautiful they were and show off. And there were these like exotic birds to display. Whereas we never think that about chickens today. No. We never think that, right? Chickens are like this, it's the most populous bird on the planet. There's billions of chickens um, and they t- their turnover of chickens is billions a year. Like there's mm. 35 billion, uh, somewhere between 29 and 35 billion chickens on the planet. So not so rare time. and exotic anymore. Exactly. But they only live to like 18 weeks to 18 months. And so the turnover of birds is... Mm you know, 35 billion every 18 months, potentially. More, more, you know, <laughs> I can't do that math, but it's a lot of birds. They're not, they're not this exotic bird that people have got on display. Uh, and what's interesting about this paper is this is actually what I found in London. So, but chickens were in, in the UK before um, my research starts. My research starts in about 18, in the 1840s, 1850s. Um, but that was a turning point for the chicken, basically, in London. Uh, and the reason it was a turning point is because Queen Victoria and Prince Albert basically loved chickens. And once uh, Queen Victoria was on the throne, Prince Albert remodelled the aviary at Windsor Park, where Windsor, Windsor Castle is, uh, and for, for Victoria to basically display all of the ornamental birds she she collected. So not just chickens, but bustards, uh, pigeons, so, you know, all kinds of birds, but really chickens were what she loved. And so she had her kind of, you know, colonial explorers with all of those heavy legacies were bringing her back chickens from all over the world. And she was displaying them in Windsor Park. Um, and and off the back of that, there was an explosion in chicken collecting and importantly, chicken breeding. Um, so chicken breeders then kind of bought in or got in these exotic birds, crossbreeding them uh, and then displaying them to Queen Victoria, basically. And this was what what they call a hen. It was called the hen fever and it exploded for like 20, 15, 20 years in Britain and across the Atlantic in the USA. And this was sort of a, a turning point for chickens because they became so populous. Uh, the, all the middle classes, upper classes wanted chickens, but not for food, for kind of, um, yeah, display for this beauty purpose and then my work tracks how that changes over the next 170 years to where we are today um 
which is not obviously not that, but there is a little <laughs> bit of that still going on, which we can talk about later on. But is this like, would they keep the chickens as live chickens for display? So how would they, how would they display them? Yeah, so they would be live chickens. They would be in kind of big aviaries. You know how you oh, think okay. of, hmm. I don't know, uh, a budgie or something in a cage. It would be much like that, except more like a, a coop. And do you know maybe why there were so many birds? Were there also other animals or were birds kind of something that was more ornamental than other animals? So as I as I understand it, the this basically the, the fall of the hen, so when hens fell out of favour, that was when the Victorian lapdog kind of mm. exploded, which you might have read histories about the Victorian lapdog and these kind of ornamental dogs who were far more kind of, I suppose, cuddly and <laughs> far more like the dogs we know today. So this was the almost the predecessor to that really famous animal, the Victorian lap, lapdog, was the ornamental chicken, chicken. in London. <laughs> so what do you think the equivalent is today in people's houses? What do people have as the ornamental exotic thing? I guess they're like special breed dogs, yeah. you know, these really expensive cross-breed dogs mm. um, that have all these kind of issues. Yeah. I guess it, it's... More, I don't know, it's, it's more about the relationship than what it is the relationship with one of objectification and one of display. And some people do treat their dogs like that, right? And some people yeah. treat their dogs like babies. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a whole range of things. And I guess it's more about the relationship. Because at this time, people were keeping chickens for eggs. It was just that this was the explosion. Uh, and this was before, right? So this was before we had broiler chickens. This was before the genome split and we had the obese uh, broiler chickens and these chickens would only be laying like one egg a month so it wasn't mm. um you know it wasn't that efficient system kind of efficient mm. in the quote marks efficient system of food production to have chickens in 1840 as it was today because the basically the reason we have broiler birds and the reason we have chickens that lay so many eggs is um breeding and the genome split so the genome split in about 1900 and we got the obese strain of layers and broilers those big big birds and those heavy laying birds that we have today so this was before that so it really was and I don't know if people have seen kind of the different breeds but you when you think of a chicken you might just think of a you know that kind of ready brown yeah. <laughs> bird but I mean the range of chickens you can get there are like hundreds of breeds of chickens from tiny little like really fluffy things to huge entirely black chickens with like black tongues black beaks and um, there's a real range of breeds of chickens. And we've also lost a lot of, the, of those breeds with the pivot to kind of focusing on broiler and layer production, industrial production. So did this genome split happen after chickens were already being bred for food? or It was about the same time, basically. I think the, think the realisation was it was both about 1900, um, the genome split. I think, I don't know which came first, you know, I think they were, <laughs> but they, the genome was split so that chickens could be amped up. So chickens are like a perfect experimental size for, for laboratories. Mm. And I'm saying this not, I don't think there should be experiments done, but I'm saying this is the, the kind of perspective of scientists. They're perfect, the perfect laboratory animal because they're small, they're easy to manage. You can clip their wings so they can't really fight back. They can mm. be picked up very easily. It's not like a cow. They have quite a quick cycle so you can lay and hatch them very quickly. Again, not like, you know, a mammal that would have a much mm. longer gestational period. Um, so at this at this point in 1900, when we were thinking about the nutrition transition and the expansion of global uh, or the, the transformation in, in global agriculture to industrialising systems, more efficient systems, mass production of food, 
the chicken was, you know, the perfect specimen to experiment with. And so there was a point in the early 1900s, around 19, I want to say 1920, 1930, where we knew more about the nutrition and the biology of chickens than any other animal. As a result of the experiment, of kind of research into the chicken, that's where we learned a lot about a lot of human nutrition. So we have quite similar nutritional needs. So the relationship between human and chicken has always been very kind of intimate very kind of they've played a lot of roles through history they've yeah. been these ornamental birds they've been these laboratory subjects they've obviously been food they've been laborers they've been companions and i don't think people appreciate the how much kind of work the chicken has done in history or how connected our histories are right so the chicken is in every single country apart from vatican city and antarctica mm. it's everywhere right <laughs> the chicken is there. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere where humans go chickens go so it's really been a, a companion for a very long time but unlike, you know, other companions or other animals that we've kind of taken with us to colonise the world, um, it's not seen with the same kind of yeah. interest almost. It's almost like people find chickens boring, which I obviously can't <laughs> believe because I absolutely love chickens. Um, but it's almost like it's this now it's this like easily dismissed bird mm. as if there could be nothing interesting about the chicken. And I think that's changed a little bit. I think people are realising how interesting the chicken is. I, I've always just found chickens terrifying, to be honest. <laughs> Is it because like, they've got creepy little dinosaur feet? <laughs> a little bit. And sometimes they're bigger than you expect. And then they can yeah, just like, really walk they can behind be really you. <laughs> but I've never thought of a chicken as a companion. And I think that's kind of a new way to look at it. Because they are around everywhere. You do see them more than a lot of other animals in my old house in the other city I was living in like the street behind had a rooster that would crow for some mm -hmm. reason there are like student houses in the Netherlands also that have chickens sometimes oh wow I don't know why exactly but yeah the, somehow it's not surprising to see chickens but you still don't really see them as a companion a lot like dogs always look like companions and cats are like reluctant mm. companions but still companions <laughs> a little bit chicken is always seems to be a bit outside of that so that's a that's a new way to look at it. Maybe I will be less scared now. That's nice. That's a lot of context, actually. I, it just puts me in a little, little bit of a different mindset while looking at the chicken and thinking about the chicken, that we've had a intertwined history with a lot of constantly changing dynamics and a lot of maybe where we are today is also if you give some credit to the chicken oh definitely <laughs> all credit to the chicken <laughs> all credit to the chicken you couldn't uh, have done it without chickens <laughs> for the listeners especially about the project you're currently doing so they can understand where how you're engaging with chickens today yeah definitely and i think this is where the companionship thing really comes in um so for the last half a century or so chickens have really been food they've really been food they've been industrialized they've been intensely farmed and like saying about these billions of chickens the turnover of chickens they have been there there is this book that was written in 1975 it's called the chicken book and it was written by a biologist and a historian and in that book they basically say that if chicken the way chicken's going the chickens that we have in the future i.e today because it's 50 years later won't be the same chickens as they won't be chickens anymore. They just won't count as chickens. And so just one more bit of context that I forgot. So in 1948, there was this contest that you might have heard of called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest. And so this is where today's broilers, um, but like the, the genome split, but through kind of breeding, it was 1948 where the birds we have today, so that's where they were designed, I guess, and first presented. So the Chicken of Tomorrow contest in 1948 was basically led by the USDA, um, so their food arm and a supermarket in America 
put on a competition to find a new bird, a new chicken, but a new breed of chicken that was grew fast and big for meat and laid heavily. So a mm. hybrid bird, they're called, they do both. And so this is, this is where the chickens that we have in farms all over, all over the world today, in factories all over the world today, that's where they came from. And so on the face of it, it was this competition to find a hybrid bird. But what the competition was actually doing was making chicken meat a desirable meat. So until before that point, people were, were eating eggs, eating a lot of eggs. And you kind of have the egg, you'd eat the eggs. And then at the end of the life cycle, if you were keeping chickens yourself, obviously, which most of the farms at that point mm. were small scale farms, you'd then eat the chicken. And I don't eat animals and I've never eaten animals. But as I understand it, the chicken meat was then kind of sinewy and not very mm. nice. And so people didn't want it. But with the broiler bird, you have more fleshiness and they've not been kind of, they're younger birds as well yeah. when they slaughtered. And actually most of the genetic stock of birds today are owned by just three kind of big corporations of, of the, the birds that we eat. So these birds are a million miles away from companions. And, you know, people were saying 50 years ago, these aren't even going to be chickens because they're going to be so different, right? They're going to be so different. And this was backed up by archae- a geological uh, paper in 2018 that said actually the um, the bones of broiler chickens are that of a new morpher species. So a real Anthropocene animal. They don't even, you know, in the in the future, looking back, if you dig up those bones, they won't be the same species as Gallus mm. gallus domesticus, which is the chicken. It will be seen as a, a kind of new morpher species, a human signature in the uh, kind of yeah the ge- geological record um so it's, it's so it is kind of true but i i i disagree uh, i think chickens are still chickens and so this companionship thing uh, kind of getting onto our own today over the last decade to 20 years people have changed their mind about chickens a little bit and this is kind of within a bigger context of urban living so what i'm doing at the moment is i'm researching chickens and their keepers in london uh, which people always think is a bit weird because surely there aren't that many chickens in London. There actually are a lot of chickens in London. So oh, I've forgotten the numbers again. I think something like a million households oh, wow. in Britain are keeping chickens. And one in every 20 of those households is in London. So that's a lot of chickens in London. Right? That's more that's chickens than you think. So people are keeping them uh, for, for various reasons. But the three biggest reasons that I found are people are keeping them as a kind of desire to return to a simpler life to as a kind of anti-industrial agriculture thing. So they're keeping chickens because it is this kind of good life symbol. We've got chickens in the backyard. We've made yeah. it. It's this, And in the city, that's kind of out of step with the city as well. So that's one big reason people are, are keeping them. Another one is for, for food provenance, knowing where their food comes from, reducing kind of chemicals, organic, potentially organic breeding. But the third one is, is, is for companionship. Uh, and they, they just like like chickens a lot, right? And they just have a nice time with the chickens. And some of these people aren't even keeping chickens that lay. They're keeping chickens that retired hens. Uh, and these aren't separate. You know, people can, can do these for, keep chickens for a, a mixture of these reasons. Mm. And it might be that they start keeping them for eggs and just turns out they really kind of love chickens and will keep them <laughs> long into their retirement until they die. So, so yeah, so I started researching chickens in London. I've interviewed a lot of chickens and their keepers. I've interviewed kind of hen professionals. And I've been working with a big rehoming charity to look in. So they it's called the, called the British Hen Welfare Trust. And they basically intervene at the end of chickens' productive lives in commercial scenarios, uh, like industrial farms, farms. And they buy the chickens or they get the chickens off. They work with farmers to get the chickens and they rehome them into people's gardens, which is good for farmers because they don't necessarily want their birds to go to landfill. But that used to be the cheapest thing to do. So potentially good for farmers, mm. 
good for the birds, obviously, and good for people to give these birds yeah. another, another chance. Yeah, so, so that's kind of the, the remit of the project. And within that, I started to notice, as I was talking to people, I started to notice really one of the things people talked about a lot was urban, like their mental health and urban well-being and how enriched it had been by chickens. Uh, and related to that, I've been working with like a small community gardens who have some chickens uh, and they have uh, people who work there. Uh, uh, and they have also have also experienced bird firsthand. I've been going there for a few months. The enrichment that chickens mm. can give to urban life and the particular kind of ill mental ill health that can span from urban living of you know isolation loneliness lack of connection to nature all of these things so the organization you're working with it's also to do with mental health you mentioned so kind of chickens as a companion in that sense to help with urban well-being and things like that do you so it's that, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, so, so there's two organizations one's a henry home and charity and one's uh, community gardens mm. which is basically looking at growing communities so there's a lot of gardening a lot of kind of um, yeah the chickens are there there's beehives and they're flowers, vegetables, they're learning skills, basically learning skills. Nice. Uh, in the so city. That, yeah. So that would give like an overall quite a nice urban well-being space then, like the community gardens. But mm -hmm. in the other setting, when they're rehoming chickens to people's gardens, do you think chickens maybe provide something different compared to other pets or I think yeah. they do. I think I think based on what based on what people have told me, they do. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about therapeutic animals and how good animals are for our well-being mm. and our mental health and i take issue with a lot of it because animals aren't there for us to yeah. <laughs> you know extract good feeling from animals aren't there to on on you know animals aren't there and there's kind of ethical problems with as from a vegan perspective as much as anything else there's ethical problems with extracting labor from animals therapeutic labor from animals but that being said <laughs> i think chickens offer something slightly different or Yeah, than other species, because I think we need to think about species uh, and individuals. Yeah, at that level. And the reason people reported that chickens or told me that chickens were so good for their mental health and well-being. And I guess the other context is I was interviewing through the pandemic when lots of things we would usually mm. be doing. We weren't doing. We were in our homes. The chickens are in the homes. Uh, there was a huge boom in chicken. The chickens, chickens sold out in the UK during the pandemic. Everyone wanted chickens. And part of that was there was foods. There wasn't food scarcity. People thought there was going to be food scarcity. Mm. Um, and so they thought getting chickens, that'll be easy. I'll just have some eggs in the back garden. But other people had wanted chickens for years and not had the time to have them and mm. now had this time. Which again, with the kind of like uh, dogs being returned to shelters and things, all sorts of problems. But it is yeah. what it is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of the, the situation. But they basically said that the difference between a chicken and a dog, for example, is that the chicken is, it has this connection to a, a, a different vision of life, to a vision of life that is more rooted in the earth. You know, it's this mm. particular vision of life as more simpler almost. It's a symbol of the simpler life. But also the chicken's laying collecting the eggs, selling the eggs, quite often people sell the egg, is a, a, a more interactive, people say, experience. So they learn something with the chicken. And also I think because they're quite unusual, if you've not had chickens before, it's easy to get kind of swept up in them. Um, so you know the novelist Alice Walker, Uh, who wrote The Colour Purple, she had chickens and she wrote a memoir about the chickens she had in her later life. And she, she, as she says something like, it's like getting swept, caught in the parallel world that all other animals exist in. And these chickens just capture people's imagination. Perhaps because you're not expecting it. Perhaps because they're so kind of weird, right? <laughs> weird things, weird animals. And because they lay this egg that then you 
eat or you cook, you know, it's really different to a dog who lays poo. It's more of an intimate relationship of bodies as well mm. being kind of unraveled in one another. Um, and what, what I do know is there's also evidence that chickens can help therapeutically. So in school, one, I can't, I'm not going to remember who did the study, but once one thing that I know people have been doing with chickens is for children who are struggling to learn to read. They have had chickens into schools who chick, children read to and the chickens almost interact and ch- the children's reading skills have drastically improved oh because they're reading to a chicken. So reading to someone is much better for your skills to learn to read than to read to no one. But mm-hmm. to read to a chicken, <laughs> it's better to read to a person because the chicken nods along but it's not pressure because you know the child knows that chickens don't understand but chickens are quite interactive it's interesting to learn about the how how the interaction with the chickens can improve our lives yeah. but also how can we do that in ethical ways that's the that's the, the question yeah that was also going to be my next question in some sense is like in this kind of situation where a chicken is coming into schools, is there any way to maybe know if the chicken is gaining from it in any form or is enjoying it or having an unpleasant time? And maybe that can help a little bit with gauging whether it feels like a fair ethical way of engaging with the chicken. I think so. I think one of the biggest problems with chickens in schools is chicken hatching projects. Um, mm. And so people at uh, schools will use chickens to teach about the biology of chickens and so they'll hatch mm. chickens from eggs often well-meaning but pff, not realizing that half those chickens are going to be cockerels you can't keep cockerels in a lot of places including cities mm. um, very few people want cockerels they've not thought ahead about what they're going to do with the chick the chickens that are cockerels they've sort of worked on the assumption this is one of those gendered things with animals that people have people very rarely ask what happens to male chickens what happens to the kind of male cows and so actually these school hatching projects they don't realize that chicken care is is as sophisticated as any other kind of care Mm. any other kind of animal care but because we think of chickens oh well they'd survive you know they survive in these massive farms then they'll be fine that's not true they're quite fragile little things so so that that's one of the kind of biggest problems in schools Uh, and in terms of how we know whether the chickens are having a nice time or not i think it's you can tell if they're happy (laughs) they they, then kind of performing natural behaviors like pecking dust bathing if they're not fighting if they've got enough room they won't fight they'll interact they will become comfortable uh, they will come to you 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 can kind of read their behavior uh, and some of that is just reading their behavior as as you would and any other animal that you know kind of if you have live with animals you'll know sort of if they're happy or not so yeah they're not these easy animals and and there's huge problems with positioning chickens as therapeutic Mm. workers they shouldn't really be positioned as that but it's but it obviously does enrich our lives to live with animals so what is the balance between that how can we do that ethically and it's something we're still working out i think what do you then imagine is like a potential future where things will improve for chickens I think in London I th- specifically yeah I think I think I mean I mean the, the yeah I think the the backyard can be this liberatory space for chickens it can be a space where chickens learn to be chickens so these chickens come from a, a place where they've been kind of cramped in they've not been able to perform natural behaviors and without anyone teaching them they learn how to peck they learn how to dust bait they learn how to form a social hierarchy they learn how to interact with humans and they learn to trust humans relatively mm. well most of them relatively quickly some birds don't ever trust humans but lots of them learn to, to trust them very quickly and they do have the potential to live in this kind of multi-species community 
or in in the city or elsewhere and i think in the, in the city they have this potential to live and help people connect with nature in a way they're kind of they're kind of out of placeness is what makes them kind of this radical moment for learning mm. for learning about kind of chickens and how special they are and how we shouldn't really be treating them the way we are and i don't think that's like a particularly radical thing to say <laughs> i don't think even people who eat chickens think that we should be treating chickens <laughs> the way that we are treating chickens yeah i think that's that's a kind of a choice you know some people don't or can't choose to to eat not eat the cheapest food um, yeah so so i don't think anyone would disagree i mean probably someone would disagree with me but i think most people don't want to see chickens be treated in the yeah. way that we treat chickens because it's just clearly kind of wrong uh, mm. and it also has risks you know it has zoonotic risks it has kind of uh, environmental risks it has kind of and, and it's doing damage to the earth to treat chickens in this way if we want change in the world, which we need change in the world, so yeah. we, we, it's kind of, it, it sounds on the face of it, I think people often think it sounds quite silly. Oh, you're looking at urban chickens in London, not realising that chickens are so integral to human history. They're so integral to the way we live now. Um, and they also have so much potential in changing the world. And I say this quite a lot, and I think people think I'm joking, but I'm not joking. I think chickens have changed the world over and over again. And I think we need to look at the chicken to see what changes we continue to need in the world. Um, so, so that's kind of, yeah, the, the, ch- the chicken, not to be too kind of big. No, and amazing. Thinking, but I do, I do think we have to look to the chicken if we want to know where it's gone wrong and how it could be better. Thank you so much for everything in this podcast. I think it was a really good episode and I learned a lot and I think I'm less scared of chickens and more open to potentially <laughs> hugging a hen one day. It's not as terrifying a prospect anymore. <laughs> but I, I think it really does uh, put it into perspective when you think about something that we don't think about so much like a chicken. At least in my mind, because of how much I see chickens in the grocery store, when I think of chicken, I don't really see a chicken that's alive always immediately mm. in my head. And I think having a conversation like this helps create that perspective that they are very alive and have had such an influence on our lives and that... It's not nice to think of them because I don't eat meat either, but still I just see chicken as chicken in the grocery store or chicken on a menu. Uh, That's more how I see chickens than chickens that are alive. And so I think this has been really nice for that and provides a different perspective to look at the world and go about life in general with this added knowledge that chickens are doing something for you every day and have done in some (laughs) sense. Uh, Is there anything more you'd like to add that maybe we haven't been able to touch upon? I don't think so. I think this has been really, really fun to talk about chickens. I just, yeah, I love talking about chickens. <laughs> it's always great fun to, to talk about them and to try and kind of capture people's imaginations, I think. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of every podcast, I ask the speaker to ask the listeners an open question, maybe something that they can also sit with and think about after listening to our conversation or even otherwise. So do you have a question? I do. I'd like to invite listeners to think about or imagine what the world would look, sound, smell or feel like from the perspective of a chicken and see kind of where you get to with that. (laughs) Such a great question. I'm also going to think about it. And for all the listeners, this question will also be up on our mural board that will be linked in the description of this podcast. So if you do want to join the conversation and share your thoughts, you can do that there. And we will try to get back to you and keep it going as well if you have any questions. So feel free to ask. 
And Catherine, would you like to maybe give people a way that they can contact you or find you or more of your work? We'll also attach links in the description, but you can also let people know. Yeah, you can find links to my work on my website, which is katherinecmoliver.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Katie, K-A-T-I-E, C-M Oliver. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining me again today and hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Great.